Hello guys and welcome to the Life School for Men podcast. We meet here weekly at the intersection of scriptural wisdom and 21st century life for men. It's here that we'll have intelligent conversations, conversations about the issues that guys just like you and I face in everyday life. So get ready, ready to laugh, ready to think, and ready to learn. It's on now. Your homework is going to be to be uncomfortable all week while you wrestle through this. So I have to tell my wife what we did. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Alright, let me read this. What's that? Are you leaving? Okay, I'm going to give you the homework now. There's three pieces of source material that we're going to be using. One is a book I'm going to be reading from in just a minute. It's by Will Durant. He's a secular thinker. He is a brilliant scholar. He invested most of his life in studying philosophy and history and writing on both. He made money writing history, but he had a passion for philosophy, even though he didn't make any money writing about philosophy. So Will Durant is my one source thing, and it's on, on the meaning of life. Your homework assignment is to read the first couple of chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes. But I want you to read them now with an enlightened view, not as just this weird thing that you read once in a while in church. I want you to look at this not as a work of scripture, but simply as one man's quest to find meaning in life. Do not look at it as part of the Bible because it will taint your thinking. Just look at it as one human being's search to see if he can find anything meaningful in life. Just read the first couple of chapters. We might get to that today. I'm hoping we do. Is that good for you, Dan? Alright, with your permission then, I'm going to read. This is an open letter that Will Durant writes. It's written in the year, and I want... I'm, might remind us of this a couple of times. It is written July 15th, 1931. I want you to listen to what he says. I've sent the following letter with variations from my home in New York to certain famous contemporaries here, meaning in the States and abroad, for whose intelligence I had a high regard. New York, July 15th, 1931. Dear blank because it's something of a form letter. Will you interrupt your work for a moment and play the game of philosophy with me? I am attempting to face a question which our generation, perhaps more than any, seems always ready to ask and never able to answer. What is the meaning or worth of human life? Heretofore, this question has been dealt with chiefly by theorists. From Ikenton, who is... um, what we would refer to as Inotep, a 5th century uh, B.C. Egyptian king, Lao Tzu, who is the founder of Taoism, Bergson and Spangler, who are more scientific philosophers of, of a more current generation, the result has been a kind of intellectual suicide. Thought, by its very development, seems to have destroyed the value and the significance of life. The growth and the spread of knowledge, for which as many idealists and reformers prayed, has resulted in disillusionment, which has almost broken the spirit of our race. And then he goes into some specifics. Astronomers have told us that human affairs constitute but a moment in the trajectory of a star. In other words, the ability of a planet to support life is just a brief span of time between the development of a solar system and its death. Can you hear me a minute? There we go. All right. 
Civilization is a precarious interlude between the ice ages is what geologists have told us. Biologists have told us that all life is a war, a struggle for existence among individuals and groups and nations and alliances, and here with a nod to Darwin at the end, and species. Historians have told us that progress is a delusion whose glory ends in an inevitable decay. So notice what he says there. He says again and again, mankind thinks it's accomplished something, but in the end, it's all destroyed. Right? If you've ever watched a Discovery Channel show and you look at the old Mayan ruins or the old whatever ruins, I mean, it's like every human generation thinks that it has accomplished something that's permanent and lasting, and yet we look back on it a thousand years later and we realize that it hasn't. Psychologists have told us that the will and the self are the helpless instruments of heredity and environment, and that once the once incorruptible soul is but a transient incandescence of the brain. In other words, that everything that we think to be the spiritual essence of who we are is nothing but the function of the brain, and when the brain dies, the mind that is the result of the brain dies with it. That's a materials point of view. The Industrial Revolution <coughs> excuse me, has destroyed the home and the discovery of contraceptives. Now keep in mind when this is. This is 1931. And the discovery of contraceptives is destroying the family. The old morality, <laughs> this is a brilliant insight, and perhaps through the sterility of the intelligent, the race. In other words, what he says in sort of a backward way is that the people who are the wisest are the most apt to apply both birth control, leaving those who are less wise and less intelligent to procreate, therefore producing more, if you will, stupid people. <laughs> but he does it tactfully, not like I just did it. Love is analyzed into a physical congestion and marriage becomes a temporary psychological convenience slightly superior to promiscuity. I don't need to explain that, right? Democracy has degenerated into such corruption as only Milo's Rome knew. And our youthful dreams of socialist utopia disappear as we see day after day the inexhaustible acquisitiveness of men. In other words, we thought that socialism would provide some sort of utopia, but we find out that human beings are so greedy that they can't even sustain socialism. Every invention strengthens the strong and weakens the weak. How would we re-say that today? The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Every new mechanism displaces men and multiplies the horrors of war. God, who was once the consolation of our brief life and our refuge in bereavement and suffering, <clears throat> has apparently vanished from the scene. No telescope, no microscope discovers him. Speaks to what Ron said. Life has become, in that total perspective, which is philosophy, a fitful pollulation of human insects on the earth. In other words, he compares us to this thing that keeps breeding and expanding and expanding. You'll love the next phrase. And we've become something of a planetary eczema that may soon be cured. In other words, human beings are sort of like a skin rash on the earth. Asleep from which it seems there is no awakening. We are driven to conclude that the greatest mistake of human history was the discovery of truth. It has not made us free except from delusions. Delusions that comforted us and restraints that preserved us. 
It has not made us happy, for truth is not beautiful, and it did not deserve to be so passionately chased. As we look on it now, we wonder why we hurried so to find it. For it has taken from us every reason for existence except this moment's pleasure and tomorrow's trivial hope. This is the past to which science and philosophy has brought us. I, who have loved philosophy for many years, now turn back to life itself and ask you, as one who has lived as well as thought, to help me understand. Perhaps the verdict of those who have lived in diff is different from those who have merely thought. In other words, he's reaching out, exactly like you said, for other perspectives. Can anyone that I know add any different perspective or enlightenment to this? So, spare me a moment and tell me what meaning life has for you. What keeps you going? What help, if any, religion gives you? What are the sources of your inspiration and your energy? What is the goal or the motive force of your toil? Where you find your consolation and your happiness, where, in the last resort, your treasure lies. Write briefly, if you must. Write at length and at leisure, if you possibly can. For every word from you will be precious to me. Sincerely yours, Will Durant. Again, I remind you, this is written in 1931. Now, if anything, if you thought, if you were able to, and I know it's a little bit complicated the way it's worded, that's why I tried to break it down a little bit. If anything, is that expression of life more true or less true in the minds of most people today? What do you think? It is certainly as true at very least, isn't it? And isn't it remarkable? Now keep in mind, 1931, and he's seeing that many of these things, he would refer to them as what we would call mature forms of thought. In other words, this is not cutting-edge thinking. It's only taking place in a few isolated pockets at some advanced school somewhere here or there. He's saying this is out in general population, which means if it, if it is commonplace in the 30s, where and when did that begin? It began easily, mid-1800s or more, that this disenchantment and disillusionment with life and, and a struggle to find any meaning in it took place. I can barely hear you. Can you speak up? Uh, the thought that he was... He was, to me anyway, he was basically describing what the Jews were doing every time they were in the wilderness between periods of time. All right. Now, I want to remind you, Mr. Durant, a brilliant thinker. To this day, he is a well-respected writer and philosopher, even though he's been dead for years. His work continues. His, his work on the history of civilization is still regarded as one of the best writings on the whole history of the human race, even today, years after it was completed. So this is no fool, and his consideration... Now, I asked you a while ago, suppose that your 19-year-old with a box one belief system went off to university and was confronted with Mr. Durant and had never heard such ways of thinking before, how long would it take before they started to question everything that they believed? It wouldn't, would it? It was well written, it was compelling, and it really did describe a lot of truth that can be seen out there.
part of the issue that, that, that we, one of our belief systems is that there's this box where I am and this box where I arrive somewhere else, rather than a continuation of the struggles, rather than a continuation of testing what I say I believe with what I actually live out and do. Do you, do you actually want that to be true in your life? Because you realize it is going to... I'm right there with you, but this is exactly what we talked about a while ago when we talked about the, the faith and doubt journey where there is going to be an element of doubt in your faith throughout the rest of your life and you are going to have to struggle with it daily. Do you want that to be true? Because what it's going to force you to do is admit to everyone around you I believe this to be true, but I can't prove it's true. I think that's my faith low down is for you to begin a good work in me and continue on until the day of Christ's return. But that isn't the way most Christians describe their faith. They describe their faith more like this is rock solid, I know it to be a fact, only an idiot would believe otherwise. And they pass that belief on to their kids. This is truth. There is nothing else but this. This is truth. And if you believe anything but this, you're wrong. And so these children go off to university where they encounter for the first time people who are probably wiser and smarter, maybe not, not wiser, but better thinkers, smarter human beings, more intelligent and articulate, and they have a completely different belief system. So it would be in our best interest to share with our kids that this is a journey and that we still have struggles and we're still working through it, but this seems to be the best option possible. Now, there are holes in Durant's stuff. I'm not going to deny that. There are holes, but we're not ready to get there yet. Because here's why. Every Christian wants to rush right to the second shore, but they don't want to wade through it. They want to take a powerboat and get there. Because it's easier and more comfortable. Okay, let's look at four elements of belief. I think that's actually on your notes. It might be good once in a while to get to the notes. Okay, so the first is what I believe. Now most of you, honestly, don't take this personally, you probably don't know what you believe in full form. You cannot summarize specifically, this is precisely what I believe. Take some time this week to think about the big building blocks of what you believe. Next one, why? What's the evidence? What's the support? What's the foundation for what you believe? How strongly do you believe it? And the final one here is, does it matter? So there's a whole body of things that you believe that you have good reason to believe. In other words, there's facts that support them, but they really don't matter. <coughs> What's interesting is that some of the things that matter most in life are the things that we struggle most to support. Remember, this is all taking us to our ability to evaluate meaning. Okay, five truth questions. You with me? Second page, maybe? Is there truth of any kind? And if so, is there more than one kind of truth? 
This is what Ron, Ron talked about. Ron said that there is what we'll call material truth. He referred to it as scientific truth. There's a material world, and in the material world, things can be tested. But then even within that, and we talked about this maybe a couple of years ago when we did that question series, there are things that exist now that are repeat, can be repeated and tested that way. There are historical events that may have only occurred once. It doesn't mean that they're not true, but you need a different form of testing to validate whether they're true or not. Was George Washington a real human being? Well, we can't put that in a laboratory and test it. We have to use a different way of validating whether George Washington was a real human being. Right? Will this styrofoam cup hold water? Well, we can put that in a laboratory test. We can take a thousand styrofoam cups like the ones right behind him, put water in them and all and find out. We can't do that with George Washington. It's a different kind of truth. It requires a different kind of test. But then there's things that are not material that need to be tested. Jesus describes God as being spirit. How do you test spirit? That's what Ron asked. Alright, is there truth? If so, is there more than one kind of truth? Can it be known? Or perhaps tested? That was the second thing. Is this particular thing which I'm being asked to believe really true? So now we're getting personal. See, before you can declare that something is true, you have to convince someone that there is something that can be true and that it can be known. I know this is heady stuff and it might be boring you, but listen, if you want to know that you know and know why you know, you need to go through this process. Otherwise, you're going to spend the rest of your life being spoon-fed by other people and have to just buy into whatever they tell you. What if they're wrong? Well, that's a lot of what-ifs that need to be put to the test, right? So is this particular thing that I'm being asked to believe true? And here's the next one that I love. Do I want this to be true? Do I want... And that cuts both ways. How many of us live lives based on what we want to be true? What do we call that? Denial. Right? I live the way I want to live hoping that what I want to be true is true because I don't like the alternative. Now we're going to see why this matters incredibly to meaning next week. If this thing is true, will it matter or impact my life? And then we look at this final thing, which is the law of non-contradiction. A thing cannot be both true and not true at the same time in the same sense. That's a philosophical law. All right? So I can say, Clark is sitting in that chair right now at 8.40 in the morning or whatever. If Clark moves by 8.50, then that's not true anymore, but at 8.40, whatever I said, it was true. So a thing cannot be true. Now, maybe Clark has a middle name. So I call Clark by his middle name, but you say, no, that's not true. Clark was sitting in that chair right then, not... Do you have a middle name? Would you like to share it with the class? Brand. Huh? Brand. Brand. Okay, so now if I say Brand was sitting in that chair at whatever time I said, that's still true, but it's not in the same sense because it's not the same use of the word. 
Is that, is that manageable? So truth has to be true at a specific time, in a specific way, and in a specific sense. I'm not sure where I got this from, so we're going to just read this quickly. We are left with a question that each of us must answer. Is there a point to living? If not, why do we insist on asking the question? What or why does it haunt us and nag at us? And we're going to get to a reason for this in just a moment. If there is a point to it all, then why is it so elusive? Is its point obvious if seen through a certain set of eyes, but hidden from our material senses? And now we're going to get into reading this thing from C.S. Lewis. Now many of you have probably heard this before, but it's worth reading again. Again, the Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. In other words, this is the proof from desire. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfies it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest a real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the other hand, never to despise or be unthankful for those earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep, myself, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main objective of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. Alright. What's he saying? Now forget it. Now he starts out with a statement and then he moves into a belief. What's the statement? I don't want to get... He's, it's all contained in the same quote so I had to use the whole quote. The second part has to do with meaning. The first part has to do with belief system and what's his belief system? Can we explain that? Yeah. Okay. I want to I want to bring it around to meaning. Here's what Lewis says. He says, if there is a hunger inside the human being that seeks for meaning. And we know that's true because it's one of the jokes of life. It's so commonplace, right? What is the meaning of life? I mean, it's the punchline or, or the fodder for a lot of jokes. What is the meaning of life? If that thing is so per pervasive, a quest inside all humans, Lewis' point is this. There is no desire that exists for which there is not something that fills the desire. And if we can't find the answer to the desire filled in the material world, then possibly that there is another world that we're meant for and part of our existence and part of our reality is found in that other world and the desire can only be filled in the other world. At this point, that's merely a belief. Now that has to be validated, that has to be vetted in the same way as any other belief, but that's his premise and that opens up a whole other world of thought. So if I have desires that are not material desires, if I have desires that are not physical desires, is it possible that there is a world in which those desires can be realized 
It's just that I can't see it with the five senses. And that's a question. And that's another one of those questions that you're just going to take with you and chew on this week. It's going to be an ugly week for all of you. So the overall, I guess, ground or baseline for this whole thing is, probably, is, is what I've gathered is uh, what I, the definition I call embedding is where our, first, our tendency is to take out the first bit of information that we get, that we receive, and run Jesus is the answer. Okay. So that's what I tell everybody that I talk to. Jesus is the answer. That's it. I have no baseline. I have no construct for it. There's no details. It's just Jesus is the answer. Period. No, that's all the information I have. But that's still because that's the first bit of information I have. Now, the, what you're challenging us to do is don't, don't run with, like, don't input the first bit of information that you dig into what it is you're being told. Validate what it is we're being told. Tear it apart. Look at it. Because every belief system has to have an underpinning and owes its adherence an explanation. If you're a materialist, in other words, you believe in, in nothing but time and matter and chance, if you're a materialist, your belief system owes you a valid explanation for it. And it needs to deliver on that. Or, you're living in delusion. Which means you want it to be true, even if it might not be. If you're a theist, your belief system owes you an explanation. Now there are compelling reasons why you might want either to be true. You might, as John pointed out, want there to be a materialistic belief or a materialistic world because you wouldn't want God, the police officer in the sky, looking over your shoulder all the time. And that's one of the reasons you might want something to be true. But that doesn't make it true. On the other hand, I can find compelling reasons for why I might want God to be a reality and why I might want God to be true. But the mere fact that I want it to be true and orient my life toward it doesn't mean that it is true. Either belief system owes me an explanation. Now here's the problem. The belief isn't just because it owes you an explanation going to give it. You have to go hunt for it. That's the part that's difficult. I'm asking you to believe what you believe based on the fact that you have dissected it and understand it and have vetted it and tested it and have developed an intentional set of tests for it. Remember the engineer building the bridge. He doesn't construct the bridge based on what he hopes might be true for the materials. He constructs the bridge based on materials that have all been tested in advance and he knows that when he builds the bridge he can rely on it. That doesn't mean that you're not, in the end, going to arrive at the same conclusion that you believe now. It doesn't mean you're going to walk away from your faith. In the end, if Jesus' words are true, you're going to have a way to validate them. Okay, but, but to speak, and I'll get to you in just a moment, to speak one more time to what you said, there is a popular local Christian radio station that repeatedly, it, its on-air personalities, will say things essentially exactly like what he said. Jesus is truth. Jesus is the answer. But they provide no substantive underpinning for it. And it's a faith leap there. That is the wrong place to take the faith leap. God's going to ask you, if you believe in God, to take plenty of faith leaps. That's not the place to take the faith leap. 
That's the full leap. I think that uh, probably the hardest thing when you're talking to people that are not Christians and they ask you about your, your faith and everything, and as he said, you know, Jesus is the answer. Well, go ahead and prove. You know, everybody's from Missouri. You show me. Stuff. Well, show me. What's he done for you lately? You know. Well, I, I, I believe you let me wake up this morning so that I can go out and do something. You know, help people or whatever. Well, that's that's no proof. And that's I think that's the biggest the biggest question that we have to answer when we talk to people that are seeking uh, some sort of meaning is okay. You know, everybody wants the answer now. You know, it's on the phone. Everybody, you know, okay, Siri, so Jesus. You know, show show you're not a lot of people are not willing to, to explore and go between that one box and the other and go across the river. They want answers now. And how do you provide how do you provide those answers for them? Because everybody wants everything like this. And I think that's a problem that we really are up against. Okay. I'm gonna I'm going to take one more comment. Good point. I'm going to take your comment, and then i got to move on because I have a commitment to be at a certain place by the time we're done. Just that it's the, the, we believe that we're to present an answer rather than be on a journey with people. We're to present them with this box that is the answer. This is where you need to go. But the invitation is to walk the journey out with one another. Well, and, and here here is the difference between... And I can tell you, point blank, where we get that from. We get that from... The salvation invitation. But that's not the invitation that Jesus gave. The invitation that Jesus gave was, walk along with me, journey with me, come see what I'm doing, let's talk about life, and God, if there is a God, let's talk about that all on the way while we do life together. It was not a, you never saw Jesus give a salvation presentation. Would you like to come to the front of the room at the end of this all, please, and say the sinner's prayer, at which point you'll be saved and on your way to heaven. I'm sorry. There, there was a little bit of sarcasm in that, I admit. But that, that is not what Jesus ever invited anybody to. He invited them to journey with Him. And, and what was the primary focus? Not what did the Pharisees or the Sadducees want to debate about, about life in the next world or anything else. What was Jesus' primary focus? Would you like to journey with me in this life and explore what it means to live with God and in fellowship with God in this life? Now, He didn't say there wasn't a next phase, but His, his invitation was for today. It had nothing to do with the sinner's prayer. Church world invites us to something that we have to let go of one thing, walk to the front of the room or raise our hands and embrace something else. That's a whole different proposition. And when you're forced to be part of church world, what do you have to become? An ambassador of the truth. You have to know the truth in order to invite people to the truth because by definition, remember what we said about truth? Two opposing things cannot be true at the same time. So I can't invite someone into my truth to be part of my truth while they keep their truth. Because they can't have both truths at the same time. So what you are declaring when you give that salvation invitation in the way that it is conventionally done is you have to be wrong before you can be right. Therefore, if I'm doing the inviting, who's right and who's wrong? The inviter is right, the invitee is wrong. And that's not a journey. Does that make sense?
Jesus didn't invite us to that, although we would ultimately draw that conclusion, but that was ours to draw. And we would only draw that as we journeyed together with Jesus and each other. Who got me distracted with that? Was that you? Uh, I think it was <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> That's my belief system. <laughs> you're f- you know, you're free to make fun of me after you leave. As a matter of fact, you're free to make fun of me right now, brother. <laughs> few more words from C.S. Lewis. Different text. Most people, if they really if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, our longings, which no marriage, no travel, no learning, can really satisfy. Now, I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called an unsuccessful marriage, or trip, or so on. I am speaking of the best possible one. So what he's saying is the best possible marriage holds out the promise of something that ultimately it doesn't seem to be able to deliver on. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There is always something we grasp at in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery may be excellent. It has turned out to be a good job. But the it has still evaded us. Want to turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes and get us primed for your homework. And go to the first chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, not because I chose it, but because this happened to be the version of the Bible that I grabbed last night. Uh, You're going to get this read in the NIV, which actually uses the word meaning. If you have a different translation, it might use the word vanity or something. So I didn't intentionally choose this translation just so I could force the word meaning into it. This is the word that is used. Chapter 1, we're going to start at the first verse. The words of the teacher, the son of King David in Jerusalem. We assume this to be Solomon. There's many hints that it's Solomon. Whether Solomon actually wrote it or whether these are scribes later who are putting these words into the mouth of Solomon, it doesn't matter. This is an excellent treatise. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's a truth supposition. That's a belief statement. It deserves support, and so he's going to start to support it. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? I'm just going to read a little bit, and then we're going to come back and unpack it. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. Now I want to come back up to verse 3. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? 
There's a question there, but there's an assumption built into the question. And this is where you have to teach yourself to be a discerning reader. Don't just read words and move on. Ask the question of the question, why is that a valid question? Do you need me to repeat that? Ask the question of the question, why is this a valid question? What is his assumption? What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? And remember, this is a meaning question. So what is his first question about meaning? What's it all for? I should be able to find meaning in what I do. If I work, if I pour myself into my work, how many of you think that your work is an important component of what you do? Okay, if you're not sure about that, how many of you think that your work occupies a significant number of your waking hours? All right. So at very least, your work is an important part of what you do in the sense that it occupies a whole lot of your time. So it's a logical question, isn't it? I should be able to find a hint of meaning in what I spend most of my time doing. Now, if that's true for us, in an eight-hour day before we get overtime society, what would it have been like for the typical person in Solomon's day, where work was what you did from the time the big orange ball in the sky started to rise in the morning until the big orange ball went down at night? That was your work day. Shouldn't you be able to find meaning in all of that? And what's his answer? Well, possibly. What is his assumption about why there's no meaning in it? What does he say? Boil it all down. I think Ron did it already, but boil it all down for me. Everything that I do will have to be done again. There is no permanence to anything that I do. If I'm a generous benefactor, we'll put this in 21st century language, if I'm a generous benefactor and I give millions of dollars to add a new wing to a hospital, in the end, Everything that went into that new wing in the hospital is going to be obsolesced by newer technology. And in the end, 50 years from now, a wrecking ball is going to come to that piece of the hospital because they're going to decide that it no longer serves the needs of that. And therefore, everything that I've poured my whole life into will only last a little while. And everything that I've done will be gone. And that's his premise. I want to come back to what C.S. Lewis poses. That if inside of us something exists, some hunger, is it possible that there is something out there that can satisfy it? Why do we want what we've done to last and to matter? Isn't that true for most of us? I mean, not when you mow the grass. You know that's not going to last and it really doesn't matter. But something more significant than that. Isn't it true that you want what you do to last and to matter? Of course it is. Just nod your head. Work with me a little bit. There. But what's he saying? It doesn't seem to last, and therefore it can't matter. But it does matter for that short period of time that it's in It does. Yes, it does. But then it's gone. Is the answer that it doesn't matter for eternity? And we still have a yearning for what does matter for eternity. Okay. Now, that was a concise statement that left open the door to explore different possibilities. Notice he didn't rush in to fill in the rest of the gap. That's good. That's what I want. That's perfect. It seems that there is something in my heart that longs for something that lasts forever. But it seems that everything I do doesn't last forever. How do I grapple with this paradox? 
Now at this point, everyone has to give an answer to that. Whether you're a materialist or whether you're a theist, you have to somehow explain why it is that something in us longs for what we do to last forever, and yet it seems that nothing that we do lasts forever. It doesn't matter what your worldview, that worldview owes you an explanation as to why you think that way. The materialist explains it this way. It is the function of the brain. Remember what we said the brain is. The brain is the, the source from which mind is produced. And when the brain dies, what happens to mind? It dies too. So it's all a function of your material programming. If we were to go back to Durant's assumption, it was that the soul, the essence of who we are, we'll talk about that in week three, the soul, the essence of who you are, is merely a function of mind. And therefore, when your brain dies, all that dies with us. That's the materialist explanation. It's an illusion. We want things to last forever because of our genetic programming. The theist says, and we'll use Lewis's example again, that there might possibly be something out there beyond here and now, and that's why we hunger for it. At this point, in week one, both of those are competing theories that need to be tested. You need to do the work of starting to evaluate that. It does. Did you hear what Ron said? Doesn't that mean that we have a craving to be more godlike because when God creates something, it seems to last forever? I mean, look at the way he describes it right here. The water doesn't go away. What happens to the water? It goes to the ocean, but then returns to the stream. The sun doesn't go away. It comes back again the next day. It seems that what God builds lasts forever. It seems that what we build lasts for a generation, and it's gone. That was a great illustration, Ron. Time's up. How's that for an unceremonious ending? Uh,